0: Hey, and welcome back to another episode of Spreading the Word. I'm your host, Paul Byzanti. As we continue a series on the life of Jesus, we're in the book of John today. In chapter 6, we see that Jesus is just coming off the heels of uh, saying in chapter 5 that the prophecies that Moses offered the nation of Israel were actually speaking about him. And Jesus is about to perform one of his most well-known miracles of multiplying the loaves and the fish for the 5,000 and we see a lot of similarities in this passage in John chapter 6 to the time in Hebrews 11 when God provided quail for the Israelites when they're grumbling about the manna that was coming from heaven so the application that we look at is how do we see Jesus today what is his role in our lives Well, without any further ado, let's jump right into it. Good morning, church. So, uh, this morning, uh, dig into my past a little bit. Uh, I think most of you here probably recall a time in my life when I repaired iPads and iPhones and various Apple devices, and broke Samsung devices attempting to repair them. Um, And occasionally when I was doing these repairs, I would come across some sort of roadblock to what I was doing that I didn't quite know how to how to figure out. And that was usually like some sort of software or settings component. Not so much the hardware, not like that was fairly straightforward. Um, but I would need to go and search for the answers, and so I'd, I'd turn to the internet, the source of all of today's information. I'd go to the internet, and I would sort of search the the, the question I had, like, how do I deal with this particular setting on an Apple device or, or whatnot? And this would typically lead me down the path of uh, going to an Apple fanboy forum where someone had asked a similar question and all the responses from the various Apple fanboys on there would be something along the lines of, well, why would you ever want to change that setting? Apple made it perfectly to begin with. Um, and so I would I would get frustrated whenever I would try to find these answers because there was no real body of knowledge out there to, to deal with these questions. I'd always be met with, why would you ever want to do that? Um, So uh, as opposed to getting a careful and well-thought-out response, considering that maybe there was a rationale behind my question, I'd be faced with that type of asinine response. (laughs) So my line of questioning about software settings and whatnot in in repairing these devices uh, and looking for diagnostic insights into how to deal with the the problem I was facing, were so far removed from the frame of mind of these Apple fanboys that they couldn't rationalize why I would even be asking the question. It, it was it was just a nonsensical question to them because their frame of mind was so completely removed from what I was getting at. And there was no ability for them to understand that rationale. And so it didn't really merit any serious consideration on their part. So. I use that illustration because there's a passage in John that we're going to read today. Uh, We're reading from John chapter 6, and in this passage, Jesus poses not a similar question, but a question that causes a similar uh, mental blockade for Philip when he's when he's asked it. So we're going to read John chapter 6 verses 1 to 15. Turn with me if you have your Bible or navigate there on your iOS or Android device. Um, Okay, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have one bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed it to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is a prophet who came into the world jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force withdrew again to a mountain by himself so <clears throat> for context in this passage we're just coming out of a we're just coming out of a, a an extended dialogue of jesus in chapter 5 where he is uh, addressing some uh questions and and, and probing by the by the Jewish leaders who were trying to figure out what he was up to and uh, in that passage Jesus had just declared that Moses prophesied about him that Moses wrote about him. So keep in mind that the context of what's happening here John frames in light of that recent revelation that Jesus gives that he is the prophet that Moses spoke of when Jesus asked Philip in verse 6 where shall we buy this bread for the people to eat he's testing Philip this isn't some actual question Jesus knows we see that in the in the text itself that Jesus knows and he's testing Philip Um, Andrew pipes in his answer is no more helpful than than Philip's Philip responds that you know eight months wages couldn't even get a bite for everyone Andrew being Helpful Mr. Helperton says, take it away. <laughs> "Well, we've got we've got these loaves and these fish." Thanks, Andrew. Um, the interesting thing about this passage is that. Uh, It closely parallels an exchange that Moses has with God in Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 11, we see that God has been providing for the people of Israel this manna, this manna from heaven. And the the Israelites were complaining about it. They were were being given this, this bread to sustain them in the wilderness but yet they were still complaining about it. And so we see that there's a lot of parallels between this exchange here in John chapter six and and what happens in Numbers chapter 11. So while Moses was a leader of God's people during the Exodus, Jesus is so much more than just a leader of the people. Jesus is sustaining the life of God's people. He's providing for his people. He is the savior of his people, and he ultimately is the king of his people. We see later on in the passage that I read that the Jews who were gathering around recognized that Jesus had this kingly potential to him, and this is this is what Jesus came to do. In Numbers chapter eleven, Moses is being continually bombarded and and just. Uh, Answering all these questions or faced with all these questions from the Israelite peoples who were complaining about the manna that God was giving to them. They were literally complaining about this bread appearing out of uh, apparently nothingness to sustain them while they were in the wilderness. And they they come to Moses and they they just exclaim that they're, they're longing and craving for meat. And, you know, being, being a, a man, I understand that craving, but... These people who were being brought through the wilderness by God's providence still had the audacity to be complaining about what they were having. So the Israelites, similar to Philip, the Israelites cry out to Moses, give us meat to eat. Where are we going to get meat? That's a big complaint. And they crave something even in spite of God's providence. And we see in the passage in, in Numbers 11, I won't read that passage, it's, it's fairly extended, but I encourage you to read it yourself and, and, and see all the parallels. God's anger burned against the Israelites here. From God's perspective, he is providing for these people. He is rescuing them. He is taking them out of captivity in Egypt, and he is rescuing them and providing for them despite their rebellion. They're only wandering through the wilderness for forty years because they disobeyed God in the first place. And he continues to provide for them and have compassion on them and care for them, and yet they still complain. So God's anger burns against the Israelites. He says that he will provide them this meat that they're craving for to the point where it will be bursting out of their nostrils they'll have so much, and yet even at that point, even when they're currently consuming the quail that God provided for them, they go to Moses and they complain. they like, I want something else. I want a different kind of meat. I want something. They continue to complain. God's people, in spite of his love and his compassion and his providence, continue to complain. In the passage here in john we see that god's people are clamoring for jesus to become their militaristic king to be their their geopolitical king to to fight against the oppression of the romans he has come he's performed these great signs he's healed the sick he's done all these amazing signs and in this passage we see that he has authority over over metaphysics. He, he, he breaks the rules of thermodynamics, it seems, to manifest this bread and this fish out of seemingly nothing. And we see these great signs, and these great signs point to Jesus' authority and his power on earth, and the Israelites are just, let's make him a king, let's take him by force and make him a king. How does this relate to us? How do these situations, both in John and in Numbers, how does this relate to what we're going through in our lives? You see, Philip's mindset is so focused on his worldly needs, is so focused on the the problem directly in front of him in his physical, tangible world, that he can't see what Jesus is getting at. You see, Philip, in John chapter 1, verse 45, acknowledges when he was called by Jesus to be a disciple. Philip says that Jesus is the one that Moses wrote about in the law, and that he is the one whom the prophets also wrote about. Philip acknowledges this. Philip knows this. He's seen his ministry. He's seen the power and authority that Jesus has on earth, and he's witnessed it, and he's testified to it, and he still in this frame of mind, like that Apple fanboy, can't rationalize, can't get to the point where Jesus' question makes him think critically about anything. How much like Philip are we? How much like the Israelites wandering through the wilderness are we? We in this Western society live in the absolute lap of luxury. We have more material wealth than any society in history. We have greater healthcare, we have greater life expectancy, we have greater medicine, we have greater social securities. We live in a time and a place that is so isolated from war and strife and the dangers that even the rest of the world today faces And yet, I know this is true for me, and yet we still moan and grumble about the petty little difficulties we have in our life. About the temporal things that in the grand scheme of everlasting life with God mean nothing. We still cry out for more. We still ask for that raise at work. We still ask for that, that new promotion, that, that new thing we want in our life, for that raptor's win tomorrow night. Like these things are still things that we complain about and that we, we honestly go to God seeking answers to these prayers that are so temporary and realistically insignificant in the grand scheme of things. We preoccupy our minds with all these things that will pass away. They will tarnish. They will rust. They will turn to dust. They will pass away. They're not things of an everlasting nature. And we're so wrapped up in our own selfishness that the questions asked of us from God are so Foreign to us that the things he places before us that we're like that little Apple fanboy who can't get past God, why would you ever want that like no, this is what this is what's before me? This is what what I need help with God. Why 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 am I concerned about that? Jesus's question to Philip is Where shall we buy the bread for these people to eat? Jesus is asking about the where Philip doesn't even pay attention to that. He answers the how. How are we going to afford that? His response is a complete different direction from what Jesus was asking of him. In the passage in Numbers, when Moses is even wondering how God is going to provide this meat that he says he's going to provide, God's retort to Moses is, Is the Lord's arm too short can the Lord not make the world with a word can he not create life with a breath can he not do all these things then what is it to bring some quail into the desert what is it to make some fish and some loaves for 5,000 if he can speak the world into existence with a breath then how can he not do those things? Do we dare to question God's ability to answer the how of his question? All he's asking is for us to believe that he can provide. In Numbers, it's revealed to us that God's anger burned against the Israelites. The ones who complained were ultimately killed. Their lack of faith and their continual complaining and groaning was detestable to God. Jesus is about, in the second half of chapter 6, is about to give one of the hardest teachings he's ever given his followers. These 5,000 that are clamoring around him, that are about to try and make him their king by force, Within the space of a chapter, an afternoon of Jesus teaching to them, they desert him. The only ones who are left are the twelve. Provision for food and physical life in this first part of John chapter 6 is emblematic, is, is symbolic for the deeper meaning of life sustaining, everlasting life. What's happening in this first part where Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes is pointing towards this bread of life discourse that Jesus is about to give. We'll spend more time on that next week. But in this passage here, Jesus is testing the faith of Philip. In the passage in Numbers, God is testing the faith of his Israelites. Do we ever stop to think that maybe God is testing our faith in the hardships that we face? It may seem overwhelming. It may seem discouraging that Philip, this guy who wants to follow Jesus, that ultimately does stick around, is one of the 12 that sticks around, gets put through such tests and such scrutineering. And when we're faced with tests in our life, tests of our faith, don't be discouraged by it because God is only testing the faith of the godly. See, God has no desire to confirm that unbelievers don't actually believe in him. That's, that's, that's common knowledge to him that people who don't have faith in him are not going to have faith in him. So when God is testing the faith of the Israelites in the Exodus, and when Jesus is testing the faith of Philip, it's because they are deemed suitable enough to have their faith refined, to have growth spiritually, and trust in God. When he's testing the faith of the Israelites, it is to purify their hearts. He knows that their hearts are being pulled by these worldly things, just as ours are today. But God is producing these tests in their life to purify and refine and to strengthen their faith as they grow in closer relationship with God. When Jesus is testing the faith of Philip, it is to reveal a greater meaning of what Jesus came to do not just multiply loaves and fish, not just heal the sick, not be some sort of geopolitical king, but to be king of our lives. The testing of our faith can go one of two ways. We can be discouraged by the hardship and fall away and weaken and draw back and be one of the 5,000 who leave and desert Jesus. Or we can be encouraged that God has looked at us and has seen that we are suitable enough candidates to be strengthened, to be matured, to be purified, to be refined, and become holier and more faithful. It's interesting. This passage in John chapter 6 is paralleled in the other synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though, the interesting thing is that uh, a lot of the, uh, the work of actually distributing the fish and the bread is done by the disciples. Those gospel writers share that. But John here doesn't share that. It seems to be emphasizing that Jesus is the sole actor here. He is, the, he is making it all happen. His point is perhaps that Jesus is underscoring that he, as God, is the source of providence, is the source of... Of authority. He has rule, leadership, authority, and is king of our lives. When Jesus is multiplying the bread and the fish, he's putting his full power and authority as king of this world on display for everyone to see. That is a, that is a mirror of what God is doing in Numbers chapter 11, where God is providing this quail and this manna out of nothingness in the wilderness Jesus doing the same thing for these five thousand gathered here is, is mirroring that. Like this, It's not by coincidence that Jesus is calling to mind that he is the prophet that Moses spoke of and then goes through this example that mirrors everything that God was doing in chapter 11 of Numbers. The people ultimately do conclude from this display that Jesus is, is the one that Moses spoke of but again Their thought is so focused and rooted in the immediacy of their tangible lives that they don't see the deeper spiritual meaning. They want to make Jesus king by force. Jesus is our king, but not in a military sense, not in a political sense. We've been brought into God's kingdom through Christ's sacrifice. We've been made new because of Jesus's perfection and we've been rescued because of Jesus's victory over sin and death. How do we apply this to our lives? How do we take this passage where he's multiplying the the bread and the fish and apply that to our lives? I think we need to think about who God deems worthy of testing in their faith. Think about the tests you face and see it as a compliment, as a, as, a, as a source of encouragement that God has thought that you are capable of being tested, that you are capable of growing, that you are capable of maturing, being refined, and being made more like Christ. In the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, God establishes promises with his people, and his people are the beneficiaries of his covenant. All God is looking for is a confirmation of faithfulness of the beneficiaries of his covenant. He is just looking to confirm that these people he's made these promises to believe and are faithful that God is going to hold on to his promises. When a crisis of faith comes into your life, is your response, like that of the Israelites clamoring for more meat, or like Philip, focusing on the how, instead of the... where? Are we focusing on this thing that we can't really rationalize because we so root ourselves in this temporary world, that we can't see how God is already providing for us in that situation? When you find yourself in a trial, in a test, do you find yourself asking, why is this happening? How long must this go on? How do I endure this, God? How do I deal with this and that and that? Trust that God is providing for you in that situation. Trust that God is faithful to his promises. These are probably times where God is already telling you the how in some fashion and to just trust in that and to wait it out. Our faith in God is to recognize and place Jesus in his rightful place as the authority and ruler and king of our lives. And that if we have faith in the providence of God, all the questions that seem impossible for us to answer are already answered through God's faithfulness. Jesus is king of our lives. Jesus is Lord of our lives. What does that mean for us? How do we conduct our lives knowing that our king Is the one who came to die for us. A lot of times when we think of kings and rulers and leaders in our lives, we don't think of them serving us, but rather them lording over us. But in this instance, Jesus is the one that came to serve us. How does that impact what we do? Well, I would think that, at least for me, That would create a gratitude in my heart that would allow me to conduct my life in thankfulness and and graciousness for what he's come to do. I want to thank everyone for tuning in this week. I pray that this is a helpful time for you, that this ministry can support and encourage you wherever you are. If you're in the Kitchener-Waterloo area, please feel free to reach out. We'd love to connect with you. We'd love to have you uh, join us on on Sunday morning for worship. And we'd love to get to know you more. Uh, If you think that this is a a helpful thing in your walk as a Christian and uh, you'd like to share it with others, please do. Uh, We are just hoping that we can support and build up the, the church throughout the world. Again, I thank you for joining us today, and I pray that you'll have a great week.